I believe that whether uh, wherever we find ourselves, we can we can be thankful for the harvest that God does provide because ultimately it feeds us all. Um, and then, so I guess that's that's kind of why I've come to harvest meeting. Why are you here? <clears throat> Yesterday, the, the verse that kept coming to me as I was thinking about harvest meeting isn't necessarily about uh, physical harvest. It's in John chapter 4. I'm going to read just a few verses here in opening. And this was when, the, when Jesus had talked with the woman at the well for a while. And you know the story. But in verse 27... of John chapter 4 and upon this came his disciples and marveled that he talked with the woman yet no man said what seekest thou or why are you talking to her so they were they were marveling they were wondering perhaps they were assuming things perhaps but they didn't ask what he was talking to her about Then the woman left with her water pot and went her way into the city and saith to the men, Come, see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. <clears throat> In the meanwhile, his disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. But he said unto them, I have meat to eat that you know not of. Therefore said the disciples to one another, Has any man brought him aught to eat? But Jesus, Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me, and to finish his work. That's what Jesus was here to do. What are we here to do? Say not that there are yet four months, and then cometh the harvest. You know, uh, naturally speaking, I suppose there's about four months between a lot of crops that are raised from the time you plant them till you, till you harvest them. Uh, Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. And he that reapeth receiveth wages and gathereth fruit unto eternal life, that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. And herein is the saying true, one soweth and another reapeth. I sent you to reap that whereon ye bestowed no labor, other men labored and you are entered into their labors. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman which testified. And I guess as I was just read that and was thinking about it, it, it feels like that Jesus was using a natural thing of harvest and yet he was speaking about a spiritual harvest here. And sometimes we, you know, he had spoken with this woman and sometimes maybe we plant a seed and we expect it to take a while for, the, for there to be fruit. Um, but there wasn't, any, there wasn't really any span of time here between when this woman heard the gospel and when she began to bear fruit almost. She was, she was testifying of what God had done and she brought all these other people with her. And the, the, the harvest was immediately great. And I guess sometimes maybe we think that um, maybe it's not quite ready the situation's not quite right. Um, the timing isn't quite right. 
And I think spiritually speaking, we, th there can be a place of wisdom and patience, no doubt. But sometimes the harvest is more ready than what we want to think it is. Or, or maybe we just can't wait until everything's perfect, until everything feels right to, you know, talk to the woman at the well. And then to all the other people that she brings with her that were Samaritan people. You know, they weren't really who the disciples thought they were supposed to be really talking with. Uh, those are just a, you know, a few scattered thoughts on <clears throat> harvest and hopefully drawing our minds to, yes, thanksgiving to God for the ways that he provides physically for us, but to a spiritual harvest that is really what we're called to do. That's what Jesus was here for, and that's what he wants us to be about. So with that, I think we will go to prayer, and I, will, I would entertain any prayer requests or uh, praise reports if you have any at this time. All right, well, let's go to prayer. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we pause before you this evening and we just thank you. Thank you that you provide for us in every way, every day. And Lord, we just thank you that we can trust you for the tomorrows of life and thank you that you provide our daily bread and thank you that you provide for us spiritually and that tonight we get to gather together and we get to uh, partake of the bread of life and we just pray that your Holy Spirit would, would speak uh, through Brother Dennis tonight to, to bring a message that you would have us to hear, Lord, a message to call us to a higher and a closer walk with you, um, to be your disciples and to be ready and to be active in this harvest of souls. I already thank you for Dennis uh, coming and serving here tonight. I just pray that you would bless him as he shares the message. Thank you for each heart that is here, and I pray that your spirit would speak to the needs and would just inspire and encourage and challenge and exhort in the way that each heart needs tonight. Lord, we pray for those who have lost loved ones, and we think of the Armstrong family tonight, and we just pray for our our older folks who can't be with us, Lord, we pray for Ivan and Bonnie and Rob and Pat, Jerry and Ruby, and Lord, just uh, pray that you would be near them and thank you for them and their testimony of life and life of your faithfulness. Ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll just go ahead and introduce Brother Dennis right now, since I didn't do it earlier, but he's from the Pleasant Ridge Congregation, and he's come to share a message with us. We'll have a song, and then we'll turn it over to him. 
I would invite you to stand again with me. Number 96 in the worship of his majesty. Number 96.
Well, good evening. We are glad to be together with you this, this evening and this week for this weekend. I just might say before we get started, we uh, just heard earlier this afternoon, and I'm sure you've heard too, uh, and just want to mention as a prayer request for, for uh, Sister Lou, the passing of her brother last evening, and so we want to remember her at this time and the family, Don and the family. The combines are ready to roll read the text from mom, and in an instant I was six years old again and back in the fields of Gifford, Illinois. I saw the sights, I smelled the smells, I heard the sounds, I felt what it's like to feel miracles. That's the magic of harvest time, where hard work, prayer, patience, and tiny bags of seeds turn into bumper crops that feed the world. I never grow tired of it, and if you, too, grew up in middle of the middle Midwest, neither do you. The man that penned those words is Tim Miles. I have no idea who he is. I came across that. But there's a, a man who grew up on a farm, apparently maybe away from the farm, but when mom sends the text, the combines are rolling. It stirs something within him. As Clem said, not everybody is directly related to the land anymore, but certainly our roots, probably from all of our families, were one time in the land. And we still have those connections and we still understand it. There's something special about harvest. For me, it was one of my favorite times of the fall. It was a favorite time of year, and the harvest is special. I never farmed a lot of acres, a couple of hundred for a while, but then I got into custom harvesting and did about a 1,000-plus acres a year with an older, smaller combine, which meant a lot of hours in a combine. But I love the harvest. There's something special about the harvest. I don't know either, Clem, the, the history of harvest meetings. All I know is at Pleasant Ridge, we've had a harvest meeting as long as I can remember, but not every congregation did, in this, even in this district. I don't even remember for sure about Inglewood when it, when it was back in Inglewood, this congregation. Uh, maybe some of you know that answer better than I. Uh, how long you had harvest meetings or what your history is even here in this uh, facility. When we look at the history of even uh, God's people, the, uh, the Israelites, God made a special thing out of the harvest. In fact, I think uh, maybe three, three of the feasts are related to the harvest. And uh, throughout both the Old and New Testament, because the people were agrarian society, there's many, many proverbs and lessons uh, based on agriculture, uh, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, because the people understood the lessons, because it was part of their daily life. We go back to the Psalms, and I'm going to begin there this evening, Psalm 126, verses 5 and 6, They that sow in tears shall reap in joy, 
He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Those words are few, but I wonder what the story is behind it. I see tears. I see joy. I see precious seed. I see sheaves. So one is made to wonder if this uh, was some poor farmer, and, and I can picture this, he, he needed to save some seed for harvest, and at that time seed and food would have been synonymous. He may have been in the predicament of, do I put the seed in the ground or do we eat the seed to sustain our life? Because it's called precious seed. When you have a lot and abundance of something, you don't usually put the word precious to it readily. And so I can see this farmer taking that precious seed in his basket out to the field and very carefully planting it and maybe weeping, weeping to God to bless this seed, to bless it with a harvest. Because he desperately needs a harvest. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. And so the picture is that he will come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. And so we see there's a time space here from the planting of the seed until the time of bringing in the sheaves. And so the picture changes from a picture of tears and hopefulness to a place of rejoicing. And so the harvest is a time of rejoicing, but we know that in a fallen world and in a broken world and the sin-marred world that sometimes the harvests don't come. Sometimes there are droughts, sometimes there are storms. I was in Kansas one summer and I saw the effects of a hailstorm. The wheat had been just ready to harvest, and this was very localized, but I, as I drove by that field, it was stubble. It was like it had been mowed off. There was nothing left. It was gone in a few minutes. And can you imagine, it, you know, if, if you're the farmer, and you're just this close to harvest, and then it's destroyed. But those are stories that have happened again and again. The miracle of the harvest. There is a miracle in the harvest. It is a miracle that we stand in awe, even in this world. Sometimes we wonder where did the harvest come from? We didn't expect such a bountiful harvest. It didn't seem like the weather had been quite right. It didn't seem like the rainfall had been quite right. But we were surprised by the harvest. What about spiritually? I believe that first of all, we do thank God for the harvest. We all are directly related to the harvest. All city people, no matter where they are, count on the harvest. 
whether they understand it or not. I remember seeing a documentary on the Dust Bowl days. And the history of that, of that time was back at the time of World War I. There was a demand for wheat. And wheat became very high priced. And the farmers on the southern plains discovered that those rich prairie soils could grow wheat. At the time, what they called the sodbuster, they got broke out the plows and they plowed millions of acres and planted wheat. And for a number of years, they had bountiful crops. The rains came. It was as if they had struck a gold mine. They were becoming very wealthy from wheat. But as most of you know a little bit of that story, the the weather changed. They went about another 10 years without hardly any rain at all. And because they had broken open these prairie soils, the winds came, and you've heard the stories of the dust storms. I remember some of the older folks at Kansas telling they remember the dust storms when the dark clouds would roll in and the static electricity would be thick in the air. It was an incredible time of desperation and hopefulness mixed together. Next year will be better. Surely next year the rains will come. But they didn't come. And they didn't come. And they didn't come. Many fled west or some back east. Many went to California. But a few survived. Those were tri tri testing times and troublesome times for those folks as they long for the harvest to return. But spiritually, we see the same cycles, don't we? We see times when it seems like the harvest is thin. The harvest is not plentiful. And we've seen the times of plenty. The miracle of harvest. I want to turn to 1 Corinthians, the third chapter. And Paul is addressing the Corinthians about a problem. Several problems, actually, in this letter, but he starts out and he says, And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto you were not able to bear it. Neither yet now are ye able, for ye are yet carnal. For whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal, and walk as men? For while one saith, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Paulus, are ye not carnal? Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos, but ministers by whom ye believe, even as the Lord gave to every man? I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his labor. For ye are laborers together with God, ye are God's husbandry, ye are God's building. What we see here 
Paul is saying to the Corinthian church that there's some issues going on here. There's strife, there's divisions. Not only that, where they were dividing among themselves about which man to follow, which teacher was most influential in their life, whatever. Paul was not pleased with this. Some were identifying with Paul, others with Apollos. But Paul lays out some important instruction here. He says, I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. And I think there's an important lesson here because we are planters and we are waterers. But I'm going to call this the miracle of the increase. We do not have the power within ourselves to control the increase. When I think of the natural sense, we, we do have input. And we have impact. But ultimately it's God who controls the increase. We develop better seeds. We develop better farming practices. We learn how to irrigate. And so maybe in that sense, we, we are part of the increase. But even as Paul had planted, he had come into communities, he went into their synagogues, he opened up the scriptures, he told them about Jesus. He told them his own testimony, how that he was a persecutor of these Christians, these people that were a threat to him as a Jew. He would relay his testimony of the time when he was on the road to Damascus and God spoke to him. God struck him down, so to speak. And now he's preaching Jesus. Now he would say, woe is to me if I preach not the gospel. The God of increase. I came across a testimony from our own local community. I've not met this individual. But as he gave his testimony, what I heard of it, he told about, he lived in Chicago, I believe. And for some reason he came to Northwest Ohio, I think in his mid thirties, he had somehow gotten very wealthy. Uh, I don't know what his business was. He didn't share that. But he was an atheist, and his wife was, an, was also an atheist. And they came to Williams County, a no place compared to Chicago. Little town, don't know what his business was there. He would be courteous to church people and pastors, but he, behind their backs, he laughed at them, wanted nothing to do with Christianity. Through a series of events, he somewhat became indebted to a pastor over another situation with some, another individual. I don't remember the exact details, but he got involved with a local pastor, and the pastor said, why don't you just come to our evening services a few nights? Kind of pay off your debt, so to speak, whatever it was. Well, he thought he kind of owed it to the pastor, so he thought he could agree to... to uh, suffer through that for a few evenings. But something happened. 
Something began to stir in his being. He began to get confused. Is there a God? He was sure all these years there wasn't a God. He didn't even talk to his wife. They came home one of those, one of those Sunday evenings and he said, I went to my bedroom and I just kneeled down beside my bed and I said, God, if you're real, show me. And he said, in one instant, I knew there was a God and I've never doubted it since. That's the God of increase. God doesn't always work that way. But you take a hardened atheist. It wasn't logic. It wasn't any of these kind of hard reasons. It wasn't somebody pushing him. But something had stirred in his soul. And he had a question. And he kind of reached out to an unknown God, whether he didn't even know there was a God. But God spoke to him. And now he's a pastor. And gives his testimony. The miracle of the increase. We're laborers. We labor with each other. We labor in the community. We plant seeds. We try to water seeds. But until God gets involved, it all washes away. The miracle of the increase, and we must never forget that. And I've searched my own heart, and you have too, I'm sure, is why? Why is it so hard to lead people to Christ? Are we not, are we not smart enough? Are we not convincing enough? Are we not persistent enough? I don't know what all the answers are. Paul was persistent. He went from city to city. But he also got stoned. He also got kicked out. He got beaten up. That was part of the process. He was a laborer. And he said, we are laborers together with God. But he said to the Corinthian brothers and sisters, don't forget, it's God that gives the increase. And so we can begin to reason with ourselves. Well, if it's God that gives the increase, then I guess it's totally up to him. If he wants Christians, if he doesn't want Christians, we're getting into mysteries I don't understand. The revelation of God and who he reveals himself to. But all I know is Jesus said to the disciples, he said, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That's our command. We can't control the increase, but we can be faithful with the gospel. He just said, go. Go, go. And what does that mean to us? In the 21st century in America, I told Donna as we were driving down and just noticing the well-kept farm places and the big homes and, you know, actually we recognize there's a lot of wealth in our communities. And I thought, you think about somebody, you take somebody from a Haiti or a Kenya or some other third world country, and for the first time you bring them here and you would be driving down this road, I would think it would almost be incomprehensible. The wealth that's here in America.
We've seen the increase of the harvest physically and partly because we've labored and been diligent. In the book of Acts, we see Jesus just before he departs tell the believers, tell his disciples to tarry in Jerusalem. And he said, but ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria, and under the uttermost part of the earth. We know the feast. It was Pentecost. The Jews were coming into Jerusalem to celebrate the feast. Fifty days after the Passover, it was one of the fruits, or one of the feasts of the first fruits. The, I believe, if I remember right, the wheat harvest. And God had taught his people to give the first fruits. And he used it as a lesson, and he says the Spirit is, is the first fruits of our inheritance. Jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection. And so God used these to illustrate truths to his people. As we see there on Pentecost, they were tarrying, they were in the upper room waiting. And then the miracle happened. Something they'd never experienced. Something they weren't expecting. The Holy Spirit came down. They were probably confused. Certainly the people that observed were confused. They said, these men are drunk with wine. They had received the power that Jesus had promised. The power of the Holy Spirit. Peter rises up from that occasion and he begins to preach. And he preached to the Jews from the Old Testament. And he went through the story of the Old Testament and out of that he, he brought it, he, he built the story until he brought Jesus into the story and, and something happened there. 3,000 souls were touched by God's increase. And I would say they became the first fruits of the church. We can't always explain the miracle of the increase. How many of you read Tozer? Anybody? A few? Many years ago, I discovered Tozer a long time ago and I started collecting his, some of his books and writings and there's one little book that I have it's getting pretty worn out but every year or two I dig it out and I get blessed by it it's getting yellow I've had it a long time it's called Paths to Power I don't know if you're familiar with that little booklet it's really small, really thin but I'm going to take the liberty to read, and it's a little bit of a long reading, but it fits very much 
in the lesson of the harvest. The greatest event in history was the coming of Jesus Christ into the world to live and to die for mankind. The next greatest event was going forth of the church to embody the life of Christ and to spread the knowledge of his salvation throughout the earth. It was not an easy task which the church faced when she came down from that upper room to carry on the work of a man who is known to have died, to have died as criminals die, and more than that, to persuade others that this man had risen from the dead and that he was the Son of God and Savior. This mission was, in the, in the nature of it, doomed to failure from the start. Who would credit such a fantastic story? Who would put faith in one whom society had condemned and crucified? Left to herself, the church must have perished as a thousand abortive sects had done before her and have left nothing for a future generation to remember. That the church did not perish was due entirely to the miraculous element within her. The element was supplied by the Holy Spirit who came at Pentecost to empower her for the task. For the church was not an organization merely, not a movement, but a walking incarnation of spiritual energy. And she accomplished within a few brief years such prodigies of moral conquest as to leave us wholly without an explanation apart from God. In short, the church began in power, moved in power, and moved just as long as she had power. When she no longer had power, she dug in for safety and sought to conserve her gains. But her blessings were like the manna. When they tried to keep it overnight, it bred worms and stank. So we had monasticism, scholasticism, institutionalism, and they have all been indicative of the same thing, absence of spiritual power. In church history, every new return to New Testament power has marked a new advance somewhere, a fresh proclamation of the gospel, an upsurge in missionary zeal, and every diminution of power has seen the rise of some new mechanism for conservation and defense. If this analysis is reasonably correct, then we are today in a state of very low spiritual energy. For it cannot be denied that the modern church has dug in up to her ears and is struggling desperately to defend the little ground she holds. She lacks the spiritual insight to know that her best defense is an offense, and she is too languid to put the knowledge into effect if she had it. If we are to advance, we must have power. Paganism is slowly closing in on the church, and her only response is an occasional drive for one thing or another, usually money or a noisy but timid campaign to improve the morals of the movies. Such activities amount to little more than a slight twitching of the muscles of a drowsy giant, too sleepy to care. These efforts sometimes reach the headlines, but they accomplish little that is lasting and are soon forgotten. The church must have power. She must become formidable, a moral force to be reckoned with if she would regain her lost position of spiritual ascendancy 
and make her message the revolutionizing, conquering thing it once was. Since power is a word used a word of many uses and misuses, let me explain what I mean by it. First, I mean spiritual energy of sufficient voltage to produce great saints once again. The breed of mild, harmless Christian grown in our generation is but a poor sample of what the grace of God can do when it operates in power in the human heart. The emotionless act of accepting the Lord practice among us bears little resemblance to the whirlwind conversions of the past. We need the power that transforms, that fills the soul with a sweet intoxication that will make a former persecutor to be beside himself with the love of Christ. We have today theological saints who can and must be proved by the, to be saints by an appeal to the Greek original. We need saints whose lives proclaim their sainthood and who need, need not run to the concordance for authentication. Secondly, I mean spiritual unction that will give a heavenly unction to our worship, that will make our meeting places sweet with the divine presence. In such a holy place, showy sermons and streamlined personalities would be all out of order, a very grief to the Holy Spirit, and the emphasis will fall where it belongs upon the Lord himself and his message to mankind. Then I mean the heavenly quality which marks the church as a divine thing, the greatest proof of our weakness these days is that there is no longer anything terrible or mysterious about us. The church has been explained the surest evidence of her fall. We now have little that cannot be accounted for by psychology and statistics. In that early church, they met together on Solomon's porch, and so great was the sense of God's presence that no man durst join himself to them. The world saw the fire in that bush and stood back in fear, but no one is afraid of ashes. Today they dare come as close as they please. They even slap the professed bride of Christ on the back and get coarsely familiar. If we are ever to, again to impress unsaved men with a wholesome fear of the supernatural, we must have once more the dignity of the Holy Spirit. We must know again that awe-inspiring mystery which comes upon men and churches when they are full of the power of God. Again, I mean that effective energy which God has both in biblical and post-biblical times released into the church and into the circumstances surrounding her, which made her fruitful and labor and invincible before her foes. Miracles? Yes, when and where they are necessary. Answers to prayers, special provisions, all of these and more. It is all summed up in the words of, of the evangelist Mark. And they went forth and preached everywhere the Lord working with them, confirming the word with signs following. The whole book of Acts and the noblest chapters of church history since New Testament times are but an extension of that verse. Such words as those in the second chapter of Hebrews stand as a rebuke to the unbelieving Christians of our day. Quote, God also bearing them witness both with signs and wonders and with divers miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. And quote, a cold church is forced to interpret such language. She cannot enter into it, so she explains it away. Not a little juggling is required, not a few statements for which there is no scriptural authority, but anything will do to save face and justify our half-dead condition. Such defensive exegesis is but a refuge for unbelieving orthodoxy, a hiding place for a church too weak to stand. No one with a knowledge of the facts can deny the need for supernatural aid in the work of evangelization. 
We are so hopelessly outclassed by the world's superior strength that for us it means either God's help or sure defeat. The Christian who goes out without faith and wonders will return without fruit. No one dare be so rash as to seek to do the impossible things unless he has first been empowered by the God of the impossible. The power of the Lord was there as our guarantee of victory. Lastly, by power, I mean that divine afflatus which moves the heart and persuades the hearer to repent and believe in Christ. It is not eloquence. It is not logic. It is not argument. It is not any of these things, though it may accompany any or all of them. It is more penetrating than thought, more disconcerting than conscience, more convincing than reason. It is a subtle wonder that follows anointed preaching, a mysterious operation of spirit on spirit. Such power must be present in some degree before anyone can be saved. It is the ultimate enabling which the most earnest seeker must fall short of true saving faith. Everything else being equal, we shall have as much success in Christian work as we have in power, as we have power. No more and no less. Lack of fruit over a period argues lack of power as certainly as the sparks fly upward. Outward circumstances may hinder for a time, but nothing can long stand against the naked power of God. As well, try to fight the jagged lightning as oppose this power when it is released upon men. Then it will either save or destroy. It'll either, it will give life or bring death. Ye shall receive power is God's promise and God's provision. The rest waits on us. Sorry for the long reading, but that's a stirring past chapter to me every time I read it. It reminds us that sometimes of all our efforts and all our plannings and all our plottings that, that sometimes we miss the key element. The miracle of increase. The power of God. Tozer wrote that many years ago. At a time when it probably, as we look back, looked like Christianity was thriving. Now I just read yesterday that some people are predicting that in a few more years, less than half the people in this country will claim they're Christian. And that's startling. Because we grew up, us who were older, grew up at a time when 70, 80% of people at least declared they were Christian. They knew what the songs of the church were. You go to the nursing homes, they all know the songs of the church pretty much. They love the old songs. It tells of a time when people at least understood what Christianity was. But now there's a generation that's rising and many that don't even know hardly the name of Jesus. And they're very opposed to the gospel. They're very opposed to Christians and the values they hold. They probably don't even know what the gospel is. The miracle of the harvest. The miracle of increase. Pentecost. The first fruits. Ye shall receive power. And that is a promise from God through the Holy Spirit. Certainly we would need to develop this whole concept of what it means to be walking in the Spirit. And we're going to look a little bit at that tomorrow. Lord willing. God gave Israel Pentecost. It was a foreshadow. 
of the greatest miracle on the face of the earth. The pouring out of the Spirit to be used by his believer, by the believers, to be, as Paul would say, we're co-workers, we're co-laborers with God. And so we do not take out any part of that formula, so to speak, of God working through the believers to touch the lives of the unbeliever. How do we touch lives? Before the harvest, there's the seeding. So we have many stories of Jesus. We have many illustrations in the scripture, many proverbs about seed time and the seed. And the seed being the word of God. So I call that. The miracle of the seed. We talked about harvest first. It feels like we're going backwards. But there will never be a harvest. Unless there's seed. And so as we read there in the Psalms. This individual goes forth. Bearing precious seed. The picture of is him carrying it in a basket. The study of seed in nature is fascinating in itself. We marvel at the power of a seed. The power of a seed in a remote area, in a, in a crack, in a, in a sidewalk, or somewhere on asphalt. A little seed gets in there and it sprouts up. And it has enough power to begin to maybe push up and, and, and destroy something and push and change things. That's the power of a seed growing. So we can look at all kinds of examples of the power of a seed. Its abilities to survive. In agriculture we learn that seeds can survive in the soil for many years. If they're down deep enough and they get brought to the surface and then they'll sprout. Dormant. You say, how with all the rain and all the heat and all the cold, how can it lie there year after year and then all of a sudden spring forth with life? A miracle. A miracle of the seed. We find that God's word God's word is one illustration of the seed. We find that the fruits of the Spirit are seed. And so we look at many examples around us. And we look at an apple. And we say, what's the potential of this apple? Well, it becomes food, we throw it away, but, you know, in there are seeds, and in that, each one of those seeds, is there, there's a tree. And each one of those trees are many apples. That's the power of a seed. Something so small, something we would say so insignificant, 
But under the right conditions, the results can be incredible. Max Lucado says in a little essay of his, never underestimate the power of a seed. Want to see a miracle? Plant a word of love, heart deep, in a person's life. Nurture it with a smile and a prayer and watch what happens. An employee gets a compliment. A wife receives a bouquet of flowers. A cake is baked and carried next door. A widow is hugged. A gas station attendant is honored. A preacher is praised. Sowing seeds of peace is like sowing beans. You don't know why it works. You just know it does. Seeds are planted. And topsoils of hurt are shoved away. Don't forget the principle. Never underestimate the power of a seed. God didn't. When his kingdom was ravaged and his people had forgotten his name, he planted a seed. When the soil of the human heart had grown cold and crusty, he planted his seed. When religion had become a ritual and the temple a trading post, he planted his seed. Want to see a miracle? Watch him as he places the seed of his own self in the fertile womb of a Jewish girl. Up it grew like a tender green shoot sprouting from a root in a dry and sterile ground. The seed spent a lifetime pushing back the stones that tried to keep it underground. The seed made a ministry out of shoving away the rocks that cluttered his father's soil. The stones of legalism that burdened backs. The stones of oppression that broke bones. The stones of prejudice that fenced out the needy. But it was the final stone that proved to be the supreme test of the seed. The stone of death, rolled by humans and sealed by Satan in front of the tomb. For a moment it appeared the seed would be stuck in the earth. For a moment it looked like this rock was too big to be budged. But then, somewhere in the heart of the earth, the seed of God stirred, shoved, and sprouted. The ground trembled, and the rock of the tomb tumbled, and the flower of Easter blossomed. Never underestimate the power of a seed. We long for harvest. We love to see the miracle of harvest. Spiritually. But it begins with a seed. Planting a seed. And on that day of Pentecost, as Peter went out before his people, a history they knew perfectly well about their own history. And it was not a new story. But as he went there in the power of the Holy Spirit, something stirred in their hearts and in their souls, and they began to cry out, what must we do to be saved? That's the miracle of a seed when the power of God is upon it. And so God is saying to me, and he's saying to you, don't underestimate the power of the seed. 
In the morning, sow your seed. In the evening, sow your seed. When the wind is blowing, sow your seed. When the wind is not blowing, sow your seed. For we don't know what will, will be profitable, this or that. I'm somewhat paraphrasing some of the Ecclesiastes writings. We don't know. Jesus says, go forth in faith. And I'll give you power. It's God that needs to get the glory. We cannot say, when the harvest has been bountiful, look what we have accomplished. Look what we've accomplished. Our plan was good. We reached out to the community. Look what's happening. And when we begin to take that glory to ourselves, it's just like the man of the Old Testament will begin to stink. The very thing that God provided for us, the miracle of life, the manna, will begin to stink because we've taken the glory. It becomes about us and not about God. What do we need as a church today? Tozer pictures a church that is weak and half dead, a sleepy giant. Does that apply to me and to you? I think our hearts are sincere, I really do. But do we need something awakened within our spirit? A dimension that we're not really fully experiencing, the power of God, the power of the Holy Spirit to impact the lives of people in our communities and in our families? We cannot predict the harvest. Because God is the Lord of the harvest. But he simply says, go and sow the seed. Burying the precious seed with tears, with humility, with maybe a little bit of anxiety, a little uncertainty, but with the faith that as I put this seed into the ground that there's a God in heaven that sees me put this seed there. And if he chooses to increase it, that I will have the blessing of someday coming back home from the field with rejoicing, bearing my sheaves, the miracle of the joy of the harvest. What shall we sing?